welcome to The Lit Pickers, the podcast where Dipanjana Pal and Supriya Nair talk about the books they're reading, the books they've read, and the books that they will never read. When I say they, of course, I mean we, because it's just the two of us in the studio. And we're here today because I want to talk about watching Hamab Ke Khan on Amazon Prime, which is what I was just doing before I came to the studio. Hi, Dipanjana. I just want to know, is this how you're spending your time? Because I am jealous at this point. You look like you have a cult of your own. I've given up. I've given up on reading books and uh, life. Otherwise, I've just gone back to syrupy movies from the 1990s. Anyway, the reason I brought this up particularly was because... Have you seen the movie? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> There's a throwaway scene early on uh, in Hamab Khekon, an establishing shot. Only one throwaway scene? <laughs> Surely you jest. Well, the rest of them are all songs. <laughs> There's an establishing shot where the protagonists have gone to a temple town where they're about to meet the daughter-in-law of their dreams. And at this temple town, there are people sitting in the courtyard of a temple reciting something. And the subtitles to Hamab Khekon written by some blessed wise person, say, chanting in Sanskrit. <laughs> when in fact, what they're, what they're doing is the opposite of Sanskrit. They're reading out Tulsi's Ramayana oh. out loud. And that is, as you know, in Avadhi. Yes. The whole point was that it wasn't written in Sanskrit. Tulsi's Ramayana and a brilliant book inspired by it is the subject of what Dipanjana and I want to talk about today. Welcome to this Lit Pickers episode on Amitabha Bhakshi's Half the Night is Gone. I'd like to say that it's not just about Half the Night is Gone, it's more about the Ramayanas, perhaps. But then we'll see how that goes out. Uh, because for me, mm. Half the Night is Gone was a beautifully written book. It's a slim but dense novel about three generations of a family of masters and servants. There's really no more politically correct way to put it. And it's not interested in political correctness, it's let's not. be fair. Like these are feudal setups, mm. very romanticized in many ways, because, you know, the whole master-servant relationship, even though he's not, uh, he's not being coy about how exploitative it is, but he does give it a sort of rose-tinted hue of uh, the good old days when this is how we cared for each other. Yeah. So it's a story about the good old days, about three generations of masters and servants in a Haveli in Delhi. And the thread that runs through their lives is explored by a Hindi novelist writing in the present day, a manuscript that may or may not be about his own life and history. The emotional and intellectual text undergirding Half the Night is Gone is the Tulsi Ramayana. Yeah. Uh, Tulsidas's Ramcharit Manas is essentially what Amitabh Bhakti described as the underlying fabric of social existence in North India. Like you cannot grow up in North India without having heard the Manas everywhere. And that's the sense that he tries to bring in the book as well. Now, the Ramcharit Manas is today a very politically charged document because it's considered one of the authoritative versions of the Ramayana. And the Ramayana has multiple versions. There's obviously the very famous 300 Ramayana's essay, which was taken off the syllabi a few years ago. But at he, Delhi University. At Delhi University. If you're listening to this outside of Delhi, nobody cares because you've never been taught to read A.K. Ramanujan anyway. You may not have actually been taught to read him in any case, but <laughs> you should look him up. He's a brilliant writer. The essay is a brilliant essay. Indeed. But the thing is that the Ramayana in itself is not about status quo which is why I was quite interested in how 
the Manas is used in the novel, in Half the Night is Gone, to essentially set up a status quo where this kind of feudalism and the inequalness is almost justified. The gender inequality is justified using uh, the Manas and the same for the other stuff. I think it says a lot about the Manas as a historical artifact in the life of North India. And in this, Bhakti was very right. On the one hand, it provides an emotional language for people, especially for men who, as we all know, have historically had very little idea of how to relate to each other. Because the Ramayana is a text about family and about losing family and losing love. Through it, its early readers were able to find echoes of their own lives and make sense of their own tragedies and dramas and failings and shortcomings. If the text seems overtly political today, as it does when we speak 30 or 40 years after you know, Durdarshan Ramayana, which kind of changed all of India. For, for the better. For a variety. Because really... Give so, or, yeah, give or take a medieval masjid or two, right? I mean, forget the medieval masjid. The fact that there was a squeaky arrow coming through my TV screen at me, that made my life on Sunday mornings. Thank you very much. Yeah, Brahmastra um, forever. Yeah. <laughs> but long before the Durdarshan was airing squiggly arrows and uh, princes dressed like mendicants on our screens... Tulsidas's Ramcharit Manas was a political artifact in North India. If you read the journalist Akshay Mukul's Gita Press and the Making of Hindu India, you get a great sense of how this Manas became to Hindu ideologues and the owners of the famous Gita Press an equivalent to the kind of texts that they complained Hinduism did not otherwise have to rival the texts of Islam and Christianity, which they were very worried were making inroads into the Indian consciousness. So to counter the idea that with the Quran or with the Bible, you actually had an object that Muslims and Christians could live their lives by. It was an accessible manual. That's how the Manas was marketed. It was printed and distributed yeah. and yeah. sold and envisioned. And it continues to be one of those books that you can get pretty much anywhere, particularly the Hindi version of it, right? Mm. Um, what's interesting to me is to pick the manas mm. for a work of fiction. Right. Right? I think that is actually because of its nature as a popular guide. I just read a story Dinesh Narayanan, the Economic Times journalist, wrote in which he's reporting on the political mood in Uttar Pradesh. And he closes the story with an astonishing quote. He meets a man in rural UP who says... If we lived our life according to the principles of Tulsi's Ram Charit Manas, Indira Gandhi would have stayed in the kitchen. Would have wow. I mean, do we know how good a cook she was? Anyway, okay, never mind. So this is my point, that picking the Manas as the spirit of your novel, it's one of those novels where, you know, I'm reading about mostly men because, you know, the women are barely there. Hmm. But I'm reading about these men whom I pretty much despise, I think is the simple way of putting it, because they're unpleasant characters. And Amitabh Bakshi is not trying to whitewash them in mm. the slightest. And yet he does use the manas and other events in the book to try and evoke sympathy in you. Yeah. What's funny is outside of the Hindi tradition, you might argue that there is a long history of us seeing the male heroes of the Ramayana themselves as unpleasant characters. This doesn't happen, paradoxically, in uh, the Tulsi Ramayana. But it... In fact, the Tulsi Ramayana is one of the Ramayans that is far more committed to creating the aura of goodness mm. around Ram. Of the Mariada Purushottam. Of the Mariada Purushottam, the one who sticks to 
the dharma mm. and is not to be faulted mm. the manas is one of the key components of that cult mm. as it were now the ramayan in itself right it has always had multiple versions mm. from as far back as we can tell of this text which was written down in some form or the other because it's not a shruti text it's a smriti text mm. What does that mean? Smriti means that which is remembered. Shruti means that which is passed down through oral telling. Hmm. So, as a smriti text, we're told constantly that oh, there are twenty thousand ramanas, there are thirty thousand ramanas, but here's the one that I want to tell you for particular reasons. Hmm. The story of the Ramayan has always been about resistance. It began as the story of the downfall of Ravan. It was. It didn't even begin as Ram's story. Hmm. It was Valmiki's. what we know as valmiki's ramayana it was chronicling the fall of pulastya's grandson pulastya being one of the great sages mm. his grandson is ravan ravan is a hero in every possible way he's larger than life he's vanquished every single god and he's got boons from the holy trinity of brahma mahadev and vishnu he is the rock star yeah he has not one handsome face but 10 handsome faces because you know that's really prepossessing <laughs> just this disbalanced huge male yeah. um anyway which girl doesn't want that apparently though he was very hot <laughs> um and so basically he's like he's essentially a hero who is brought down by this little man right stop collapsing in laughter <laughs> sorry i'm just imagining like 10 abs for 10 yeah pages. it's just <laughs> sorry but <laughs> sorry but little man little rama, man rama right who doesn't even have a kingdom of his own cuz he's and like, only one head so, yeah, by the way right um, cuz he's like some random exile dude from yeah. like up north His, from Ayodhya where where family, even is that his family is not a huge family it is not one of the greats hmm. and particularly when he goes to fight ravan he has an army of monkeys hmm. as it turns out kind of cool but nobody knew that right yeah. within the text nobody knew that no it was practically like a david and goliath story essentially That's right? right with ram as the david character hmm. there's the essential politics of that right now later on when you look at the multiple versions that have come in it's always really interesting to me that when people pick up something like the manas to inform their text why are you picking that hmm. because there are these incredible resistance ramans that have been there in our that are very much a part of our tradition hmm. how does that function in bengali because i know that you've read a bunch of ramayana and allied texts so i mean i'm fascinated by the ramayana hmm. um because i just love the kind of space that it opens up for a multitude of topics that are still so relevant to us you know gender relations your relationship with the environment uh development versus deforestation i mean these are concerns in the text just as they are concerns for us today hmm. but for example one of the lesser known ramayanas from bengal is one that was attributed to this woman called chandravati oh that's cool i thought you were going to start with like krithivash cuz that's what all bengalis talk about dude man dead bengali man so many of them never right. mind but chandravati i'm chandra interested in her so, yes. or chandravati if mm. we want to be suitably bengali about it um chandravati um, suit yourself dipanjana <laughs> <laughs> okay so what i love about chandravati's ramayan is that uh, it was written because she was um she was jilted at the altar essentially she's not a brahmin mm. she's not from a brahmin family rather mm. 
because uh, obviously as a woman you are not a caste you are whatever the man's caste is so either your father's or your husband's so ballpark what era we uh, are talking about 16th century chandrabhuti chandrabhuti it's only to be said like this okay <laughs> anyway so uh, chandrabhuti is from the 16th century roughly mm. yeah 16th century is an interesting time you have a bunch of women who actually do end up rewriting the ramayana um chandrabhuti in bengal mm. uh, though i mean it's kind of weird like we obviously did have women doing things in sanskrit and hinduism even though we pretended that they didn't cuz the gayatri mantra gayatri is a woman but as a woman you can't say it. it's very weird anyway controversial eh, you know sorry let's come back to chandrabhuti 16th century gets jilted at the altar at which point her father says write the ramayana hmm. no doubt no not really okay. i think he was basically punishing her saying that learn the good ways oh. by reading the ramayana and rewriting it bad move dude except here's a literate smart cookie mm. so so chandravati does rewrite the ramayana but pretty much from sita's perspective and she skips all the bits that are about ram's glory more or less mm. includes bits where she's actually saying to ram what are you doing why do you not have sense now chandrabhuti took as her base or inspiration a version of the ramayan that is actually attributed to valmiki mm. it's called the adbhut ramayan okay and the adbhut ramayan opens with uh, bharadwaj who's another one of the awesome ramens on top right. uh hopefully he was awesome at any rate who knows uh bharadwaj and valmiki are sitting by the banks of a river as you traditionally must to tell a story in hinduism for some reason hmm. i think it's because it takes a really long time so then the bathrooms right there but anyway um so they're sitting by a river and bharadwaj says to valmiki there are 20000 or 30000 ramayans out there tell me the one that nobody else knows mm. and valmiki tells him the adbhut ramayan now in the adbhut ramayan one of the things that happens is that it's not particularly interested in the bits that are the largest parts of the original ramayan in and you have a lot more time with sita there's a different origin story for sita that comes out so she's not found in a furrow she is not found well she does end up being at the tip of a furrow but uh, that comes about in a slightly different way because she is actually mandodari's daughter mandodari oh. being ravan's wife damn so there is a situation in which ravan collects drops of blood from a group of brahmins puts it in a pitcher and brings it back home as you do um and tells mandodari that this is really powerful stuff it can kill you pause here to consider that uh, ravan cottoned onto the fact that the most toxic thing that exists ramen blood babies <laughs> yep <laughs> okay so mandodari who is long suffering because you know ravan is going around sleeping with too many women mm-hmm. she decides that she wants to kill herself so she drinks this blood except it does not kill her it makes her pregnant iron age biology I I'm telling you this is scientific advancement that we have only begun to understand. Yep. Um so she gets pregnant, uh she has this child. Mm. 
This child, because of a number of complicated circumstances, she gives away the child and it ends up at the tip of a furrow in the mainland. Right. Okay. Uh, read the Adbhut Ramayana to figure all of this stuff out because I don't want to bore you with the details. Uh, point is This that is she's... great, but I guess we should leave this episode kind of spoiler free for people who don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. spoiling enough as it is. Um, <laughs> anyway, so... That's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is that uh, when everyone's jumping up and down at the end of the war, saying that, Rama, you be so awesome because, mm. you know, you defeated all these guys, etc. Sita, after a point, is like, I don't know why you guys are going on because he hasn't actually defeated the real Ravan. <gasps> and then we find out that there is, Ravan has a twin whose name is also Ravan because apparently his daddy just couldn't think up more names. Right. Well, so they had 20 heads <laughs> together but okay. I'm dying here guys yeah no but the thing is that this whole idea of two Ravans is actually not new it's in a lot of these other folk versions as well okay uh, the fact that there was a Ravan who had his other kingdom there was the Ravan of Lanka and there's the Ravan of Patal Ravan the Malus in fact have a pretty well known version of Ramayana where this happens hmm. Um, so basically, Sita says, if you really want to win this fight, you've got to be that guy because he's the real problem. Yeah. So Ram says, but of course, once you tell me before. <laughs> so he and his dudes go off to this uh, other Ravan who sees him and he's like, who are you? Why are you here? And uh, and Ram's like, I am here to vanquish you. Mm-hmm. At which point he says, go home. No need. <laughs> And he, so he pulls out an astra, which apparently, so the description is that at one point, the whole army's there, Ram's army's there. The next thing they know, they're back home because of this weapon, which has just picked them up and redeposited them back to where they came from. Gharwapsi, first time. Mm. Now, the thing is that the interesting part about this is that this Ravan, even though he is the bad guy and we're told he's the bad guy, he does not kill anybody. Mm. However, then we end up in the obvious fight Ram Ravan lots of bashing up is happening many squiggly arrows many squiggly arrows Ram pulls out the squiggly arrow that killed the other Ravan right and throws it at this Ravan Mm. who takes it with his left hand and snaps it on his thigh Mm. now these are all uh, those thighs yeah the thighs are very central to Hindu epics let it be known that's true I mean a lot of things happen on them thighs many drunk (laughs) Right. Um, So the whole point of Ravan being able to pick up that astra with his left hand and break it on his left thigh is Mm. to show how easy it is for him. Right. Yeah. Ram freaks out when he sees that. And guess what the hero does? He faints. Mm. Not even joking. He just faints on the battleground. At which point Sita is like, do I have to do everything? And she does. Mm. So she out she comes. She takes on Mahakali Roop and beats the crap out of Ravan. Then all the gods show up saying, oh my God, you're so awesome. And uh, she says, yes, would you kindly revive my husband? (laughs) Who they revive, sees her, freaks out again. He's like, what is this? Where is my pretty wife? Who is this dark, terrible creature? Hmm. At which point she's like, hello, I am more powerful. Yeah. So you better show me some respect, which she proceeds to do. And basically the last part of Adbhut Ramayana is just... Paragraph after paragraph, chapter after chapter of saying how powerful and amazing Sita is. This is kind of the cool thing about Valmiki's Ramayana, which is uh, something not a lot of other adapters or some of his most famous adapters in history don't necessarily want to deal with, which is the complexity of Sita and her position. 
you know, if everyone from Kamban who wrote in Tamar to a bunch of others just don't seem to want to deal with the complexity of what happens after they all come home mm-hmm. uh, and she's abandoned. Or even the complexity of uh, her and Surpanakha, these women figures in the forest, uh, their understanding of how the forest works versus the Kshatriya Dharma that comes into in an antagonistic relationship with mm. the forest. So, but these are all issues that get teased out in alternative Ramayana. That's true. Telugu, from what I know, has a fantastic history of these sort of alternative retellings of the Ramayana from Volga's uh, story, S- Sita's Ramayana, yeah. which uh, is available in translation and in bookstores now, actually. And it's very it's interesting to read. Brilliant book. To, you know, the sort of work done by scholars on uh, songs that women sing when they're farming about uh, the injustice done in Andhra, about the injustice done to Sita and about how there's really very little difference between Ram and Ravan in their narcissism and in their, you know, in their male pride. Um, is all stuff that uh, I think is very inconvenient in mainstream readings of the Ramayana. In fact, I was reading the Ramayana scholar Vilcheru Narayana Rao's retelling of a story that was published as recently as the 2000s and created a huge ruckus in Andhra about uh, Sita being kidnapped by Ravana Mm. and discovering that there's actually not all that much of a difference between, between her kidnapper and her husband. Um, which apparently led to, you know, the RSS going in and smashing up uh, the offices of Andhra Jyoti, the newspaper where this was published by a writer called D.R. Indra. Anyway, while all of this is going on and while the, the Ramayana continues to provide a kind of intellectual and emotional ferment in every part of India where it is read and heard today, we come back to the idea that this uh, so what, what prize-nominated yeah. novel written in English in Delhi circles back to... Circles back to the version of the Ramayana which is the least diverse. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's something to be said about Half the Night is Gone also being a novel about Hindi and loving Hindi and about uh, the Manas being a cornerstone of, of modern Hindi. Although I, yeah, although I think that uh, Bhakti, you know, kind of isn't entirely fair to how the development of Hindi itself is depicted in his novel through uh, his very endearing, often endearing um, protagonist who is a Hindi novelist who tells us about what it's like to be to be writing in what is essentially a new language and to be thwarted at every turn as this old novelist sees it by, you know, the kind of the reprobate Anglophiles who kind of controlled independent India and wanted nothing to do with Hindi and with its uh, progressive ideals, none of which is actually the truth. It's not the truth. And that's what's interesting to me. I mean, a a work of fiction does not have to be historically accurate or or, uh, true to the way a language has developed. It's under no obligation to do any of that. But when these are the decisions that you make as a writer, you're telling me that this is the worldview that you'd like me to adopt while inside this book. And for me, the grouses against the Anglophilia uh, bringing down the language of Hindi and not giving it enough respect, this is the kind of cribbing that we have heard for years in like family gatherings and stuff like that, uh, if you are unfortunate or fortunate enough to have Hindi speakers in your family. Mm. Um, But a certain amount of angst that regional languages have been cut down and uh, suppressed by the English language is a grouse in many communities. That's true. In certain communities, it has 
some legs to stand on. Hindi is not one of those communities, actually. But there is no doubt, that said, that there is a greater degree of currency that English has today, which in certain sections of society, which perhaps Hindi does not have. Yeah, and I guess you could say that Bagchi, as a sort of member of Anglophone Indian society, is writing for people like you and me, yeah. rather than uh, representing some kind of historical truth about the development of Hindi and about its political failures, which of which is, there are many, and there's like true. a whole separate history to be And written. that's fine. I just find myself wishing that he picked a Ramayan that was a little more of a resistance than the Manases. Well... He didn't. And so we have... <laughs> Thanks for the that. Ma- so we have... Well, because he didn't, we have the manas we have and we have uh, the half the night is gone that we have. And if there are any other interesting Ramayanas that you know of that you'd like to tell us about, Supriya and I are both on Twitter. Supriya is... Supriya N. And Dipanjana is... Dipanjana without the double A. So that's D-P-A-N-J-A-N-A. We are also on Instagram, actually. So uh, feel free to hit us up there. Yeah, just search for us in the search bar because like, this is... There aren't that many of our names that have become hugely famous and therefore are easily confusable. True. On that happy note... We will hear you again uh, with Lit Pickers when we're back with uh, more critical burning issues of literally awesomeness. Until then, bye-bye. This is a Made in India production. The editorial producers are May Thomas and Sean Phantom. Shania Subramanian is our producer and the assistant producer is Janam Devan. These episodes are edited by Vijay Doifare and recorded by Adriel George, as well as the Island City Studio. Our theme music is Here's to You by the Easy Wanderlings. <laughs>